Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, December 18th, 2023. On the show today, news and in listener questions, how much guacamole is too much? Then in our main segment, Jim pays tribute to Disney legend Dick Nunes. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that you better watch out is fine, but you better not cry is a deal breaker. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I, uh, Glenn, do you realize <laughs> how many sad Christmas songs there are? There's a, <laughs> I'll be home for Christmas, if only in my, uh, uh, if only in my dreams. And until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. Christmas shoes, all right? You know, the, the folks yeah. at, at Kleenex have to be keeping their factory open 24-7 <laughs> during the holiday season. I mean, all I have to do is see George Bailey reach into his coat pocket and find Zuzu's pedals. And I'm a mess, you know, I just, so you better not cry. Definitely a deal breaker come Christmas. Get on. So I mean, you got to remember there was a, uh, like a 20 year period where every Christmas song was written by someone who'd been through the great depression, <sighs> world war two or both. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, they were not a happy bunch, you know, you know? So, just be happy. You're alive. There you go. Ho, 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 ho. Yeah, so. la, 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 la. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> okay. Why, why, we should have been part of Tin Pan Alley, I swear. That's it, exactly. So. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at patreon.com slash Jim Hill Media. Thanks to new subscribers, Vigliotech, Jack Haley Mom, Matt Straub, and Paul Sweetman, and longtime subscribers, Robert Bliss, Jessica Kravitz, Kirk Landry, and Megan Baumgartner. Jim, these are the Disney Imagineers training the Ursula animatronic at Journey of the Little Mermaid to grant guests wishes like Ariel's legs for her voice. They say that they've got Ursula to understand almost every conceivable guest wish, but the best offer they can make right now is an upgrade to preferred parking and a leftover 50th anniversary iridescent cupcake. So maybe don't ask for too much, folks. True story. <laughs> you know, to be honest with you. Look, this is what I got, man. <laughs> no, that's it exactly. To be honest, my wish is that the Ursula head actually stay on that animatronic. Have you seen the video? Where- <laughs> I've seen the uh, the horror video of oh, the animatronic with its head off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot going on there. Cannot see that. So, so. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Patreon, don't forget, folks, we're moving the show off of Bandcamp and onto Patreon, beginning with our show in two weeks, so January 1st, 2024, and we've just released our third video with Imagineer Jim Scholl, who helped build Disney MGM Studios. Sign up at patreon.com slash jimhillmedia, and don't forget to close down your Bandcamp subscription after that. All right, on to the news, which is sponsored by touringplans.com. Touring plans can help you save time and money at theme parks like Walt Disney World. Check us out at touringplans.com. All right. Sad to report, Jim, and you're going to talk about this in our main segment. Former Disney chairman Dick Nunes passed away last week. He was 91. And uh, you're going to talk about this, like I said, in our main segment. But he was hired uh, at Disneyland prior to the opening in 55. He was? Uh, and he worked for Disney nearly 50 years. Helped develop Walt Disney World, the Leonard Epcot, Disney MGM Studios, Tokyo Disneyland, and Disneyland Paris. Fantastic guy. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Just an amazing story. Again, which we'll get to back half of today's show. Right, right. Also, uh, a friendly reminder to, to those of you who are traveling to a Disney park for the holidays, you'll still need a park reservation, and some of those dates are already full. So the Magic Kingdom is completely full on Christmas Day, December 25th. The studios is actually completely full tomorrow. December 19th. Really? Uh, you can still visit these parks mm-hmm. after 2 p.m. without a reservation. Mm-hmm. If you have a park hopping option. Yeah, it's uh, it's after uh, after the 19th. Strange. 
Yeah, and it was it's weird because it's a Tuesday, but whatever. And uh, speaking of the studios, Jim, you had a a really fun story that came out of our gingerbread challenge about what Disney had to do scrambling wise after the uh, the first ever Jollywood nights at Hollywood Studios, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, again, I got this story from one of uh, the event attendees for the Ginger Snap Challenge uh, held earlier this month. Uh, this individual works for the entertainment team at Disney Parks Experience and Products and was one of the people who then had to put in 20-hour days after the first Jollywood night, uh, which debuted at Disney's Hollywood Studios on Saturday, November 12th, uh, met with such miserable reviews. Now, where this gets interesting, Len, is that it turns out that Phil Holmes, the former VP in charge of Disney's Hollywood Studios, who, who retired from the company in August of 2020 after spending 50 years working at the Disney parks, um, he, he was there. Uh, on the night that the very first Jollywood Nights was held. And and as the managers at that theme park were tearing their hair out, watching in real time as the reputation of this brand new hard ticket was getting trashed online, uh, Phil just laughed and said, what you? Oh, you 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 think this is a disaster? <laughs> no, that's it exactly. You know, he said, "So look, what you guys mounted tonight is ten times better than the very first Mickey's Very Merry Christmas Party that that we presented over the Magic Kingdom in '83. Likewise, the very first Flower and Garden at Epcot in '94." But the advantage that we had is that there was no social media. Uh, yeah. You know, people couldn't hop on, on on their iPhones and immediately trash an event that they were at. Um, yeah. th- you know, they could either swing by guest relations and lodge a complaint there or or actually wait till they got home and then write a letter or make a phone call. And, and yeah. Phil then went on to say, look, you guys will figure this out and fix what needs to be fixed with Jollywood Nights. And by the time the second edition of this new seasonal hard ticket was presented at Disney's Hollywood Studios on November 18th, the entertainment uh, resort's entertainment team had largely addressed most of the guest complaints uh, from the first yeah. one. Um, but again, i got to point out, this is largely because the entertainment team had put in 20-hour days between November 12th and the 18th to address all of these issues. So kudos to the folks who, you know, put in the time to make those fixes. And and, and again, this explains that, that, that story you told about Chrissy as you guys are marching through the park and it's like, Chrissy, this is lovely. And it's like, oh my God, this is fantastic. Look at this lighting package. That wasn't there yesterday. Here we go. <laughs> because there are people working 20-hour days to make it right. Let me just say, Jeb, injecting methamphetamine directly into your spine worked for John F. Kennedy. <laughs> And if it worked for the president, it could certainly work for those cast members at Hollywood Studios who need who need to upgrade uh, uh, Jollywood Nights. So you know, I'm just saying. Just saying. Wow. Okay. Also, I love that uh, I love that Phil is uh, providing leadership there because one of the uh, one of the sayings that I remember when I worked at American Express was from CEO Ken Chenault, mm-hmm. and he said one of the uh, the jobs of a leader is to define reality and to provide hope. So you know, I can imagine Phil Holmes standing in the middle of Hollywood Studios. Well, everything's going up in metaphorical flames and there are cast members running around like doing the Kermit flail. <laughs> you know, it feels like, you know, drag, takes a drag on a cigarette like, you think this is bad? <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, because it calms everybody down. It puts things in perspective, it right? It does, it does. Yeah. And then it tells everybody that things can be fixed. So that's yeah, good. That's, so. that's an example of leadership. I, I, I really think that's true. Fantastic story. All right. All right, Jim, uh, on to surveys. 
Catherine sent in a Disneyland food survey with a question I don't think we saw in the similar survey from Walt Disney World. And here's the question. Which of the following best describes how you and your travel party feel about eating during a trip to the Disneyland Resort? Uh, If none of them completely describes you, please pick the one that comes closest. And your four choices are eating is a highlight of our trip. The second choice is, well, it's not the highlight. Eating is an important part of the, quote, Disney experience. Mm -hmm. The third choice is there's so much to do at Disneyland that eating is fairly low on our priority list. And then the fourth choice is eating is just a, is just a necessity to sustain us while we do the attractions. And the, the reason why I like this question, Jim, is because it addresses the difference in demographics in Disneyland, where most guests are locals, versus Walt Disney World, where most people are coming from out of town. So I suspect that if you compared these survey results from Disneyland and Walt Disney World, you'd get a majority of people choosing one of the first two options in world. And Disneyland would be different. What do you think? I, you know, it, it's what's fascinating about this question is I would imagine what your go tos are at the park really depend on when you first visited. I mean, if you're, you're somebody who, hmm. who went in, say, the early 60s, you know, Dole Whip, you know, because you, you know, you, ooh, I had, you had an amazing tiki room show. Whereas, you know, if you jump ahead to the late 60s, early 70s, it, it might be, uh, beignets and a mint julep in New Orleans yeah. Square. And, um, and, you know, and then, you know, I want to say churros didn't come in till the 90s or thereabouts. So, um, yeah, I mean, the thing that your family does or you and your friends and do every time you're at Disney, uh, you know, food wise would have to depend on, on, you know, what had, what was the big thing when you came through the door? Yeah. I mean, imagine somebody who uh, hadn't been to Disneyland since like 1960 comes in today and sees, you know, churros and corn dogs and turkey legs and is like, America has succeeded by any, by, <laughs> by any measure that matters. <laughs> You know, well, we won the Cold War, and this is proof. There you go. There you go. My, my day, we had you know warm water and popcorn. You know, it's like hey. we were, and we liked it. There we go. Right. So, all right. And speaking of food choices, uh, this listener question from Stincy Linson uh, says this: uh, I got the same Epcot survey about dining choices that you spoke about last week. When I was taking it, I got the vibe that they were trying to get a sense of what to do about sit-down restaurants in a theme park that has become so wholly about festival booths. How do they feel reservations when everyone spends all their time dining at festival booths? My responses made it clear that I only booked a table service restaurant because I needed to for candlelight processional, and I felt I had no choice. And I was pretty mad about that as La Celia was running an hour behind. Maybe there's no data to back that up, and they're not having trouble filling tables at restaurants. That's just how I interpreted my survey. And that's, this is a great point because, I mean, you got to think that Epcot's sit-down restaurants suffer Every time that there's a a festival, right? Yeah, you know, and, and in fact, you know, what's kind of intriguing when you th- you think about things like Space uh, Two Twenty, where yeah. uh, you know, I mean, face it, you can't really see or understand that show from the outside. You know, you you yeah. you have to have done the legwork, so to speak, the research. Um, yeah, this this is interesting. I you know I I. I have to say, you know, uh, going forward and thinking about 
what happens when a uh, communicor hall opens and, you know, and, and we see the, you know, the, the garden, uh, so to speak, being used the way it's intended with, with the festival yeah. kitchens and the food carts coming online. Even, even more choices in the front of the park. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think, I think one data point that supports what Stancy Linson is saying is the fact that restaurant Marrakesh has not reopened after three years in World Showcase. And it was always the last restaurant to fill up mm-hmm. on busy days. Mm-hmm. But so, you know, the, so the popular restaurants, the beer gardens of the world, things like that, they're probably still doing fine. But it's the the second or third tier choices where I think you're seeing a lot of people say, you know what, I'll, I'll just take my chances at the booths. And that's why Restaurant Marrakesh hasn't reopened. Yeah. And and is it's still a, a lounge, right? I mean, you know, it, it's a sometimes open? lounge. I was I was there last week. It wasn't it wasn't open, yeah. yeah so Okay. This is from a Nick via via Patreon. Why did they stop making musicals at MGM? I grew up on Hunchback the Musical and Pocahontas the Musical, and I remember a Goosebumps show back there too. All right, so just for some context. Uh, Hunchback and the Spirit of Pocahontas were both staged at the Backlot Theater, I think, right? Yep. On New York Street. Uh, Pocahontas premiered in 1993, ran for 28 minutes, and lasted until 1996. Then it was replaced by Hunchback, which was a 30-minute show that ran until 2002. A couple of points. Uh, you know, all stage shows are expensive to run because oh, they they've are. got a lot of talent mm-hmm. and a lot of support staff. And big stage shows are even more expensive and an ongoing expense. Also, some of those... Stage facilities are massive and purpose-built. Like, I don't know, Jim, if you've looked at the uh, the footprint of Indiana Jones, oh. Epic Stunt Spectacularly. Yeah. It's about the size of uh, the Star Tours facility and Backlot Express combined. Yep. Yep. So if you think about it, like, it requires a lot of very expensive talent, a lot of support staff, mm-hmm. and takes up a lot of space. I think those are probably reasons one, two, and three. Why we're not getting more uh, more stage shows at the studios? What do you think? Well, an, an, another factor here is to remember that when uh, Pocahontas came out in that was ninety six, I want to say, and then uh, the following year, Hunchback uh, came out. They didn't do the numbers that Lion King did, and but you know, again, Disney had assumed that. You know, Lion King had made so much money, it blotted out the sun. So the next Disney right. animated musical was going to do just as well. And and Pocahontas, I think, did half of uh, what Lion King did at the box office. And then, uh, you know, Hunchback the following year did two-thirds of, of what Pocahontas mm. had done. And yeah. suddenly Disney got concerned about, hey, putting these big musicals in the park off of films that we thought – would be hits. Uh, it may not be the smartest play, and they they got cautious. So, uh, you know, it, it's just kind of interesting to me. You look at something like like Tangled or Frozen, and you know, yeah. we got the the Frozen sing along show, uh, but you know, we, we never got our you know Tangled in the Park musical. Uh, mind you, we did on the cruise ship, uh, but yeah, right. just kind of interesting that that. These sort of fell out of favor for for a while. So yeah, I mean, I think the the number of facilities that are able to do really big stage shows like this is fixed. I don't think Disney's going to build many more. No. The fact that uh, the, the Magic Kingdom didn't move forward with its theater on Main Street, yeah, I, I think is evidence of this. So if if a new show is going to go in, something's going to have to come out. No, nope, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. 
All right, on to the uh, next thing. And before I uh, do the next uh, one, I want to uh, take a moment to thank whoever attended our talk at MIT in November and gave us a bag full of Marvel greeting cards. So whoever did that, thank you so much. It made our Christmas card list much easier to manage. And we really appreciate it. So thanks yeah. again. All right. And, and the reason why I mentioned the MIT thing is uh, we actually got an, uh, a listener email that we read at the MIT event, but we never did on the show. So we'll do it now. So okay. uh, a listener who's, who we're going to keep anonymous recently submitted a right to know request to Disney Parks and Resorts asking for all of the data that Disney has on them. And specifically here, they're looking at park data. Uh, and the listener said that the first response from Disney was to send back a form with the very basics, like their mm-hmm. email addresses they have registered, the annual pass they hold, mm-hmm. online subscriptions, thing like Disney Plus and ESPN. But the listener knew that there was more information and wrote back to Disney saying, this doesn't include things like my annual pass use or other in-park activity. So I don't think this response conforms to the law, at least in California. Mm-hmm. And then they waited Eventually, Disney sent them back 63 pages of information. And not only is it 63 pages, Jim, it's single-spaced in six-point font. (laughs) Holy But the information in here is kind of amazing. So one of the things that the listener points out is that Disney knows to the exact minute the fact that they ordered two sides of guacamole at Pecos Bill's Tall Tale Inn and Cafe for lunch along with a diet coke and a side of yellow rice. And and it got me thinking like I don't I don't want my doctor to know this. I think a money making opportunity here for Disney is to send emails to people and say that say something like this. Hey, I noticed you were a party of one and ate the entire cinnamon roll at Gaston's Tavern. What's it worth to you for us not to tell your doctor about this? <laughs> If you subscribe to Disney Plus right now on a two-year subscription, (laughs) we can make sure that this information stays just between the two of us. (laughs) Click here if you agree. I don't know, Jim. I'm just saying everyone's looking for new new revenue opportunities. We we haven't really explored blackmail on the on Disney parks experiences and resorts, have we? Wow. Okay. (laughs) Finally, take a a way to use you know the Disney villains in branding, and it's like exactly, exactly. Oh my God, this would be perfect. <laughs> Two sides of guacamole. Oh my God, amazing. <laughs> All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim recaps the career of Disney legend Dick Nunes. We'll be right back. The holidays are here, people. And if you're still struggling to come up with just the right way to show the loved ones in your life how much you really care. Please allow me to direct your attention to the gift that's going to solve all your problems this holiday season. And that's StoryWorth. StoryWorth is that online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years yet to come. It is a thoughtful and meaningful gift that connects you to those who matter most. And how does it do that, you ask? Well, every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought to ask them before, like who were your favorite professors at college, or what sports did you like most as a child? And after one year, StoryWorth will compile all your loved ones' stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll then be able to share and revisit for generations yet to come. 
Now, my mom keeps the Storyworth book that we got her out on display in her living room. And Nancy and I were just down visiting with her yesterday in Massachusetts. And when I cracked that thing open, I, I found myself rereading the story that my mom had shared about the first time she and my dad really connected, which, <laughs> believe it or not, was when these two performed together in their Sunday school pageant. Uh, my dad played Joseph, my mom played Mary, and the role of baby Jesus was played by a 60-watt light bulb. <laughs> These are the sorts of stories you can expect to hear from friends and family if you set them up with StoryWorth this holiday season. It is a thoughtful and personal gift from the heart that will preserve their memories for years yet to come. Go to StoryWorth.com slash right now and save $10 on your first purchase. Again, that's StoryWorth.com slash DisneyDish to save $10 on your first purchase. We thank them for sponsoring today's show. All right, Jim, for this uh, particular segment, and in honor of Dick Nunes, I've put on my formal business shorts, oh, my, my yeah. business Bermuda shorts, Your and business. socks. Yep. Yeah, Dick tried out some very interesting times during his, his stint at the company. And, I, and, and what's kind of interesting, given that it's been almost a quarter of a century since uh, this Disney legend left the company, uh, he resigned mm -hmm. as the chairman of Disney Parks and Resorts back in May of 99. Uh, by mm -hmm. the way, 44 years to the day that he started at Disney. Um, oh, nice. You know, a, a lot of the pieces – that have been published over the past 24 hours uh, about this story. 91 year old were, you know, kind of a, remember who this guy was and, and, and yeah, you know, that it's hard to, you know, if you saw it, it's hard to unsee that picture of, of Dick and his Bermuda shorts. He, he was pushing the frontiers of business attire. Well, he was more to the point because he was living and working in central Florida at that time. And it's like, Oh dear Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm burning alive in this business suit. Let's, yeah. let's no, try I love it. I mean, yeah. how many of us would rather wear shorts to work? I mean, let's face Absolutely. it. Absolutely. You know, that, that, but, but anyway, um, if you ever had dealings with Nunes and I was lucky enough over the 45 years I've worked as an entertainment reporter to get a couple of sit downs with the guy. You never forgot him because in spite of him wearing the, 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 those Bermuda shorts and having very cute knees, Dick Nunes was tough. Um, mind you, he was a Disney guy through and through. Uh, and given that Dick uh, learned directly from Walt himself how the park should be run, there was no bigger true believer when it came to doing things the Disney way. Uh, but behind that constant smile and incredibly firm handshake, there was steel and not mm. to mention a distinct don't F with me attitude. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, so, uh, you know, what you'd expect from a guy who was born during the darkest days of the Depression. Uh, he, this was back in May of 1932, Cedarton, Georgia, a tiny little city, northwestern corner of the state. Nunes family, hoping for a better life out west, traveled, as so many did in the mid-1930s, out to Southern California, where Dick then grew into a promising amateur athlete. Now, um, thanks to Marvel, Disney fans are now have a basic understanding of the multiverse and how different paths in life could lead to different outcomes. And for a time there, it looked like Dick was destined for a career in professional sports. He got a, a, a football scholarship in 1951 to attend the University of Southern California. And this 182-pound defensive back seemed destined for great things until in Nudis's sophomore year at school. Uh, this would have been 1952. Uh, during a heated game with USC's hated rival, UCLA, 
Dick broke his neck. And, and that was it. That was it for, for Nudis's career in sports. Yeah. Uh, takes a year or so off to recover from, from the injury and then graduates from USC, uh, with a bachelor of education in the spring of 55. Uh, but at that point, this then 23 year old really doesn't know what he's going to do with his life. His dream of being a professional football player is, is over. Um, but then one of his teammates at USC, a, a guy, a, a name you may be familiar with, Len, Ron Miller, um, oh. it offers Nunes a su- suggestion. It's like, look, you have a bachelor's in education. My, my father-in-law is, is building this thing out in the orange groves of Anaheim, and he needs to train a whole bunch of uh, employees to come work at the place. And if you want to job for the summer while you sort things out why not apply there i'll put in a good word with him and so that's how may 26 1955 dick nunes gets hired to work at disneyland and his very first job at the company is as a training assistant uh he he works under van france and Hmm. he helps to get the first 600 folks who are hired to work at the happiest place on earth to, to get the hang of being happy Disneylanders. That, that's what they called them back. Disneylanders, the, not cast members, happy huh. Disneylanders. And, and Nunes was definitely a happy Disneylander. He, he loved being part of the original team that pulled this family fun park up out of the ground. And so when the summer of 55 gave way to the fall, Dick put off the idea of using his bachelor in education to get a real job as a teacher and opted and said to see it, uh, you know, to stay at Disneyland and see what other opportunities presented themselves. But so, uh, so it's funny that he has a bachelor's in education because uh, I think I've talked about this very early on in the show, but uh, I think I'm one of the very few people who actually uses their undergraduate degree in the field in which it was obtained. Like, no, nobody uses their college degree, right? No, <laughs> in the field that they, I, that they studied. <laughs> I get all, I, 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 you are not wrong, get all that. that I, I remember talking to somebody at American Express who was, who was very high up mm-hmm. in leadership and technology, mm-hmm. in the technologies group, and they had a PhD in anthropology. Yeah. And I was like, I, I, you know, I don't see it. And then she's like, you don't see it. Look around, look around at this organization. You don't see it. And I'm like, never mind. I got you. <laughs> I'll be digging down on those files right over there. So exactly. Okay. Anyway. All right. All right. So Nunes, uh, so Nunes is, uh, gets, uh, referred by Ron Miller. Yep. He starts off, uh, in training happy Disneylanders. All right. What happens then? Well, uh, you know, he transfers out of training and, and finds a, a gig as a, an attraction supervisor at the park. And it's during this time when he has his first real run-in with Walt. And as the story goes, uh, Nunes was the area manager in Adventureland at the time. And uh, after Walt went on the Jungle Cruise one Sunday afternoon and had a shorter-than-expected ride, uh, Mm. Disney went out of his way to find the then 25-year-old Nunes and climbed up one side of him and down the other, uh, complaining that he had just gotten a four-minute-long ride on an attraction that was supposed to be a six-minute-long experience. And and, and so, but Dick's like, but Walt, we have enormous crowds in the park today and a huge line here in Adventureland. And, you know, that's why I told the skippers to speed it up a, a bit. So they they could get back to the dock faster and then take the next boatload of guests out, uh, you know, on, on a cruise quicker. And, you know, thereby uh, getting Adventureland attraction lined down to a manageable size and lowering guests overall wait time. And Ooh. Walt just would not have it. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. look, 
He told Dick, look, these people paid for a six-minute-long jungle cruise, and you're going to make sure that they get it. Don't worry about the line. Always give the guests the best possible show. That's what they got in line for in the first place. They heard the Jungle Good Cruise point. was a great show, and we always need to deliver on that expectation. And you, you, you got you to gotta think, Jim, that the jungle, if you were working the Jungle Cruise in the 1950s, you're basically living at Rick's American Cafe in Casablanca because <laughs> everything, everything happened there. Oh, my God. All right. So uh, so Walt Walt talks to, to Dick. What happens next? Well, because he learns this lesson firsthand <laughs> by having Walt Disney yell at him. Yeah. Uh, you know, Dick, <laughs> kind of remember that. <laughs> yeah, Dick N- Nudis never forgets it. And more to the point, Dick begins to borrow Walt educational technique, which is to say, you come down hard on people, frighten them, so they then always do what you say. Um, right. And so now, because Dick Nudis consistently delivers in whatever department he is placed in at Disneyland, he quickly rises to the ranks. And by... In 1961, Nunes is now director of park operations. I mean, he's only mm. 29 years old. And he, more yeah. to the point, he's one of Walt's most loyal lieutenants. And um, I, 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 I have to stress here, Len, that one of the main reasons that Disneyland ran so smoothly in the 1960s was because there were people in Anaheim who were deathly afraid of Dick Nunes. They, they knew he was one of Walt's favorites and Dick mm-hmm. Nunes too, you know, uh, and, yeah. and to be honest, uh, there were just a lot of folks who worked at the park who were afraid to cross the guy. Now, where this gets interesting is in December of 66, um, uh, things got uh, interesting for, for Dick for a while. There were a number of folks he had crossed at the park over the years who were now looking to settle some scores. Uh, uh. And But Nunes, again, who, who had played football, realized that sometimes the smartest play was to just step off the field for a while. you know. And so uh, when things started to get hot in Anaheim, he thought this might be a nice time to change locations. Uh, maybe go someplace a little hotter, like say Orlando. Um, so oh. Dick becomes part of the team that originally develops Walt Disney World. And interestingly, when this project began to wobble in 1968, and you and I have talked about this, Len, there was that time where the company gave serious thought to not developing the whole 40 square miles, but just concentrating, you know, literally abandoning the idea of doing World Drive and putting the Magic Kingdom basically where the ESPN wide world of sports is right now at the corner of, of, of four and 192. And we, we talked, yeah, we talked about it and it was like one of their original ideas, but imagine the mm-hmm. long term consequences uh, of that. Yeah. We would not have what we had now. No, no, no. And and that's what Dick said, you know, to the effect of yeah. we need this sec- six-mile north-south road. We need yep. to, to go all the way out to Bay Lake and dig Seven Seas Lagoon and all that. And what's interesting is that um, Roy O. Disney, uh, Walt's brother, you know, noticed how passionate this kid was about this project. So when they really got in trouble uh, when it looked like, uh, you know, that, that Disney World, you know, it, this was what, the fall of 1970 when suddenly U.S. Steel's like, oh, by the way, yeah, theme park will be ready. Hotels will not. Uh, you know, and, and Disney then effectively fired U.S. Steel and took over hmm. construction and running those hotels. Um, I, you know, he needed somebody down in Florida. 
to to ride herd on this to to you know again forgive me for for continuing to hammer on the football analogies here but to get the get it over the goal line uh yep. and so he sent Nunes and the thing of it was Nunes was now three thousand miles away from Burbank and Anaheim and Back, and and there were no such thing as cell phones so you could you could reasonably say oh I missed your phone call because I was out in the field there we go and so Dick did what he needed to do to get this project completed. And, and there are all sorts of stories about, you know, that the, the Dick basically scaring people into completing things. And what gets interesting is that, you know, when he does this, um, Nunes is hailed as a hero of the company. In fact, the very same year that Walt Disney World opens, Nunes is made executive vice president of both Walt Disney World and Disneyland. Oh, wow. 1971. Okay, so he'd been working for the company 16 years. Mm-hmm. Now he's executive vice president of yep. both parks. Both wow. parks. Okay. And Len, for the next 13 years, Dick is basically untouchable, uh, especially mm. since the parks are making money hand over fist during a time when the studios are, are genuinely struggling to make movies that connect with, with moviegoers of that era. Um, so, so no one dares to tell Dick Nudis what to do. Uh, and so the projects that get built at the parks are ones largely that Dick is championing. I mean, not for nothing, but classic Epcot came under his watch. It did. It did. <laughs> Just saying. And, and, Just saying. And what was kind of interesting is during this time, outside firms would reach out to Nunes and offer him the opportunity to come run their companies. And Dick would make sure that word always got back to Disney. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and so now, you know, that, that, you know, and the board of directors were there, oh, God, don't, you know, don't do anything to upset Dick Nunes. We don't want him to leave. He, he's the reason that the parks are so financially successful. So, and Len, this is what Michael Eisner is told when he's installed as the company's CEO in September of 1984. Right, I don't know if you said this story on on the air, but you told it to me once. It was basically like, congratulations, Michael, you're the new CEO. Uh, Do whatever Dick Nunes tells you. (laughs) Yeah. When it comes to the parks. (laughs) Yeah. And, And for a time, Michael bought into that. He towed the line. But after about five years... Um, during which Eisner bumped heads with Nunes a couple of times over attractions for the parks, Michael decided he'd had enough. So 1991, Eisner promotes Nunes to chairman of Disney Parks and Resorts while making Judson Green, who is the company's CFO, the new president of attractions. And Dick set up with a plush set of offices uh, in the Sun Bank building, which is still, by the way, across the street from, from Disney Springs. Yep. Given a full staff and no real responsibilities. Um, Dick's job from here on in is largely ceremonial. Um, Judson makes the day to day decisions about what goes on in the parks, whereas Dick, whenever it was time for Disney to present an oversized check to the United Way of Central Florida, um, he was the guy you called. And, okay. um, but, but, but for a number of years, because Dick was nothing if not loyal to the Walt Disney Company. Uh, in fact, uh, interesting uh, gig that he wound up during this period. He was the guy who reviewed uh, many of the history books that were being published about Disney. Uh, and he then had the final say-so on which stories got told. And, and, and Len, I know this for a fact because I worked with Van France on his Window on Main Street book 
back in the uh, late 1980s. And, and that, Did you really? Yeah. I, I, how, how have we known each other for 15 years and I've not heard this before? Well, I did, did, it was published by this now defunct uh, publisher up here in New Hampshire, uh, Steve Fyatt. Squirrel Press. Yeah. <laughs> Moose and Squirrel Amalgamated. Ink. There we go. Okay. All right. Um, and I, the, the original manuscript had dozens of great behind-the-scenes stories about how Disneyland really operated during the early days, but Dick wouldn't allow Van's book to be published unless some of the more colorful stories were removed. And and what oh, was interesting... You, you wouldn't happen to have a copy of this manuscript, I, would you? Because I, I have a $20 bill burning a hole in my pocket, I, Jim. <laughs> I will go down into the basement and dig that out and send it along. Yes, I, I do have this book. Um, but And the interesting thing, Nunes was able to do this because, well... At the time, France was in charge of the Disney Alumni Association, which okay. which needed permission from the company to stage events and member meetups in the parks. And Fair. more to the point, a lot of the pictures that Van wanted to include in Windows of Main Street had been taken by official Disney photographers. So they uh-huh. were property of the company, and Dick just wouldn't allow Van to use those images without rem- first removing a, a number of stories. But but again, I'll get you a copy. You can look at it. Ooh, good stuff. Um, <laughs> Okay, uh, we now right. jump ahead to April of 1994, which is when okay. uh, Disney company Frank Wells dies in a, a tragic helicopter crash. And ah. for a lot of people at Disney, uh, this is uh, – well, Michael was never the same after he lost Frank. Uh, Wells mm. was often able to persuade Eisner not to go ahead with some of his kookier ideas. And with Frank now gone, the Disney company starts to wobble, of course. And – by May of of ninety nine, uh, mm-hmm. Dick had seen and heard enough. Uh, he he often talked about wanting to be a fifty year man at Disney, uh, but given what what Eisner was up to at the time, and and Dick was would really had a gift for reading the room, mm-hmm. and you know he he could look down the road and see that the whole save Disney thing was coming yeah, and, and decided, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. And so uh, honestly, there were a lot of people in the company who were taken aback by Nunes's sudden exit. Uh, but he, he already had a second act in mind. Uh, again, remember we talked about that bachelor's in education. He got at USC back in 55. Um, Dick decides he's finally going to make use of that degree by joining forces with the university of central Florida. And, and I, this is the part of the story that I think a lot of Disney fans don't know, um, that, uh, then the Florida governor, Jeb Bush, uh, reaches out to Dick. He's heard that, you know, he's not necessarily, happy you know with what's going on at disney in fact there was a joke at the time that the people who worked on the third floor of the sunbank building which was just below his you know nunes's executive suite they they could you know sit on quiet days they could hear him groaning upstairs and pulling against his chains you know (laughs) so so jeb reaches out to dick and says hey look we're getting ready to set up a a board of trustees at each of the florida state universities and you know we know 
that you're, you're an enthusiastic Central Florida resident, and how would you feel about being a charter member of the board uh, that oh. we're looking to set up at the University of Central Florida? And and that's the thing. Dick had, you know, again, remember, had come from Cedarton, Georgia, uh, had mm -hmm. become, you know, moved out to Southern California and, and really liked it there. I mean, surfed and, and the whole bit. Uh, but but Central Florida was really a good fit for Nunes. So he happily uh, took on this position. And just threw himself into the board of trustees assignment. And and what was interesting is because Nunes obviously had a lot of experience when it came to building things in Central Florida. Um, the University of Central Florida underwent an astonishing building boom during his oh, yeah. tenure at the school. Uh, during yeah, there was a while where it was the fastest growing school in the country. Oh, God, yeah. And when you look yeah. at some of the stuff that that came to be under uh, Dick's watch, whether it was the 45,000 seat bright house network stadium, uh, not to mention the 10,000 seat us UCF arena. And by the way, both of those, both of those huge projects opened September of 2007. And wow. Uh, same month, same two month. huge construction projects. Well, yep. And, but, but here's the thing. Um, the very next year, Dick, has turned 76 and you know and and i know it's the cliche that you know want to go spend time you know with my wife and family but um at this point you know again he he had time away from disney he'd accomplished a lot for the local community and it's like it's yeah. my time it's my turn yeah uh now mind you he stays a proud disney alumni though it's been said that he didn't always recognize what the company had become, what with the acquisition of Pixar and Marvel and Lucasfilm and Fox. Yeah. Um, and he had been pushed for years to write a mem memoir about his time at the Mouse House. And, and Nunes finally delivered last year, 2022, with the publication of Walt's Apprentice, Keeping the Disney Dream Alive. Um, but that said, for, for those of us who have been trading Dick Nunes stories for years, this is a surprisingly toothless book, Len, you know. Uh, yeah, pretty tame. Well, this is the thing. Right up to the end, he's a loyal company man. And, and you know, the very best Dick Nuda stories, uh, you know, the, the ones where through force of personality or sometimes just plain old brute force. <laughs> force of personality or force. <laughs> there we go. Uh, he got his way. Uh, they were left out of this 320-page Disney Editions book. And. Um, look, a lot of Disney fans like to quote something Walt su was supposed to have said, which is, if you can dream it, you can do it. And by the way, Walt never actually said that. I mean, well, what I mean is Marty Scalar wrote that phrase for Walt to say in an episode of the Wonderful World of Color TV show, uh, you know, yeah. so, but Walt never said that in day-to-day -day life, you know, I, it never came up in actual conversation. But, but more to the point, they miss the real point of, of that phrase. It's it's like, yeah, it's important to be able to dream things up. But you ha then have to have that iron will and that ability to turn something ephemeral into reality. Yep. And that's why a Walt Disney needs a Dick Nunes, you know, a, a guy who can actually do that, a tough guy who can take on seemingly impossible assignments like turning 40 square miles of swampland in central Florida into a vacation kingdom. And 
you only get that sort of stuff done if you've got a Dick Nunes in your corner, you know, who, because he played football so fiercely that he he broke his own neck, Len, you know, you know, know, he knew that the only way to victory was to fight and to claw for every single yard. And that's what Dick Nunes did every day. He was the toughest guy I have ever met and loyal to the to a fault to the Disney company. Uh, but more to the point, also a real fun guy to talk to. Um, really? Yeah. I, I remember getting to sit down with him once. And, uh, you know, I figured the way in was to talk about projects that he had championed, that the company had not gone forward with. And so I brought up that New Orleans-themed hotel and restaurant that the company had once planned on building next to the Lily Bell in Lake Buena Vista, you know, where Disney Springs is today. Oh, and, I didn't know that was a Dick Nunes idea. Oh, God, yeah. And it, well, it oh, turns out you got to remember that Dick was at Disneyland when they opened New Orleans Square and, oh, and, and okay, had okay. then had to leave to go work on Walt Disney World. And so he'd always wanted that in Florida. Mm. So he was mm. finally going to get that built. And, but, you know, he opened like a flower to me and he was talking about, well, yeah, we were going to do that. But, you know, what was really going to put that over the top is we were going to extend the monorail from uh, from Epcot over to uh, to the shopping village. And not only really? that, we were then going to create a people mover line that you could have gotten off the monorail. And then the people mover would have taken you not only to various stops within the shopping village, but it would also serviced Hotel Plaza and even, remember the, the Lake Buena Vista Country Club and the tree houses? Yep. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was My all- sister actually stayed at the Treehouse Villas back when it, in its first incarnation, yeah. Yeah, and uh, ironically yeah. enough, this was one of the very first things that when it was presented to Michael Eisner, it's like, yeah, we're not doing that. Um, but but anyway. you know, you know what's funny? That mm-hmm. in, 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 in talking to Jim Scholl, we realized that there was actually a proposal to extend the Skyliner to Disney Springs. So that idea still is still a good idea. It's still valid. It is. It is. You know, mm. and maybe someday Bonnet Creek will let that happen. But anyway, that's we'll, a, uh, yeah. We'll, we'll call it the uh, we'll call it the Dick Nunes line. There we go. There we go. All right. Anyway, uh, Mr. Test and I wish to express our heartfelt. Condolences to the friends and family of Dick Nunes, one genuinely tough guy. And honestly, folks, every time you enter the Magic Kingdom, you should thank him. Um, and uh, Dick will definitely be missed. Oh, fantastic story, Jim. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the show today. You can help support our show by subscribing over at patreon.com slash jimhillmedia, where we're posting exclusive shows every week. On next week's show, we're going to talk about the many ways Disney has done a Christmas carol including a never-built attraction. You can find more of Jim at jimhillmedia.com and more of me, lenatetouringplans.com. One last thing, a GoFundMe has been set up in memory of our beloved producer, Aaron Adams, who passed away a couple weeks ago. You can find that at tinyurl.com slash Aaron Z Adams. And donations there will go directly to Aaron's wife, Sabrina. And on that GoFundMe page, no donation required, you'll find a link to what I think is the best show Aaron ever did, it's our American Adventure script, which was a Bandcamp exclusive, so most of you have never heard it. It's really amazing, and Aaron plays the role of Will Rogers. That's over at tinyurl.com slash Aaron Z Adams. 
were produced spectacularly by Eric Hersey, who'll be defending his Golden Noodle Award with a mixture of mozzarella, gruyere, and breadcrumbs, plus a secret pasta shape, at the 7th Annual Mac and Cheese Festival on Saturday, January 13th, 2024, on Sherman Avenue in beautiful downtown Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. While Eric's doing that, please go on to iTunes and Radar Show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We will see you on the next show.